This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. For those of us with print disabilities, they provide windows onto the world that we might never otherwise be able to access. For others, they're a convenient way of cramming more reading into our increasingly busy lives. Or distracting the kids on a long car journey. Audiobooks, or should that be talking books, have become a way of life for a significant proportion of book lovers. And continue to be the fastest area of growth in publishing. But there's always been an element of snobbery emanating from print purists as to whether listening to a book is really the same as reading it. And it was this question that prompted Professor of Modern Literature Matthew Rubery to investigate the subject further. In the untold story of the talking book, he not only explores the origins of an area of publishing that grew from the needs of blind people, but also examines the relationship between the written and spoken word. In this, episode one of a two-part special edition of My Life in Books, he and I will look at the early years of the talking book and its reception on both sides of the Atlantic. Before I introduce Professor Rubri, here's an extract from the book, which, of course, is available in audio, narrated by Jim Dennison. What difference does it make whether we read a book or listen to it? The untold story of the talking book sets out to resolve this question by tracing the history of recorded books since Thomas Edison's invention of the phonograph in 1877. Edison anticipated using sound recording technology to make books, even if it would take several decades before his prediction came true. A fledgling trade in discs, holding a few minutes of verse, eventually grew into a billion-dollar industry accounting for a substantial percentage of annual book sales today. Audiobooks have long been publishers' main source of non-print income. As late as 2010, they still generated more revenue than electronic books. And yet, despite the audiobook's prominence, it stands out as one of the only types of reading to have grown in popularity, we still lack a vocabulary for discussing its relationship to conventional books, not to mention its uncertain standing in the world of letters. Consider the following pages, an intervention into awkward conversations about recorded books. This project began when a friend mentioned reading a book then suddenly backtracked to confess that he had not actually read the book, he had listened to it. Listening to books is one of the few forms of reading for which people apologize. His apology differed so much from the usual way of discussing books as a personal achievement and sign of distinction that I felt compelled to look into the roots of this shame. My investigation led me to a sector of the publishing world that I had hardly noticed, despite a lifelong interest in books. Soon, I discovered that audiobooks have a longer history than is generally thought, one extending all the way back to Edison's recitation of Mary Had a Little Lamb on a sheet of tinfoil. Hence, my account follows the tradition from phonographic books made on wax cylinders to talking books made for blinded soldiers returning from the First World War, and, much later, the commercial audiobooks heard on car stereos and headphones today. Matthew Rubri, welcome to My Life in Books. Thanks for having me. As we've just heard, the story of the talking book begins in 1877 with Thomas Edison. Can you tell us a little bit more about his phonograph? Sure. Um, I think the important thing to remember is just that Prior to Edison's phonograph, there was no way to record sound. Uh, so if someone you knew uh, died, you would never hear their voice again. Um, Edison's invention then was the first machine to be able to capture sound and play back the human voice. 
Um, so it was a, uh, his, the first device he invented was a tinfoil phonograph. And it was basically a, uh, a cylinder which you'd wrap a sheet of tinfoil around and then rotate it while speaking through a horn. And the vibrations from your voice would make an imprint on that tinfoil that when you rotated it back, it would play your speech back out through that same funnel. Uh, so a very sort of primitive, uh, let's say record player or, or sound recording device. But it was hugely popular at the time because you know, no one had heard anything like this before. Um, and Edison and his team promoted the machine by sort of taking it on tours throughout the US and it was demonstrated other parts of the world too, where uh, people would just sort of play sounds just to amuse the audience. Um, people would sort of sing songs into it or make funny noises into it. Uh, and they would sometimes you know, recite a poem too. So you can kind of already see the, the origins of the audiobook or talking book industry um, at those exhibitions. And I think the other important thing to uh, note here is just that Edison tested out the machine with a piece of verse, a nursery rhyme, Mary Had a Little Lamb. Uh, so already in the machine's kind of first recordings, you're getting a sense of the appeal of spoken word recordings of literature um, and getting a glimpse of where the, the phonograph technology is going to go in the future. And there's even a record of an audience member asking whether it would ever be possible to record an entire book. Yeah, so completely unrealistic. I mean, it would be another 50 years before you could record entire books. But uh, this didn't stop people from speculating about how books would be radically reshaped by this technology. Once you had the possibility of recording sound, people immediately started speculating about what books would look like or sound like in the future. Uh, so you get a lot of sort of people writing about what they think the future of the book is. And that is some, some sort of practical ideas like listening to books while you're on the train, you know, which isn't that outlandish. I mean, that, that would soon be a reality to having sort of public vending machines where you could just go in the town square, download a recorded book right there and then walk away listening to it. Uh, you even had sort of these strange images of troubadour style writers tromping around the city with a phonograph strapped to their chest and they would use these really long hearing tubes or uh, earphones, earbuds, uh, and they would pass them up to the windows of buildings so people could sample their tech and decide whether they want to buy one of these recordings for their uh, collection. It is remarkable. I mean, yes, a bit steampunky, but actually really not that far from where we are now. I'm just amazed at how right some of these predictions are. Mm. So there's one illustration from 1894, so you know, over a century ago, um, that looks uncannily like the Walkman that people started listening to in the 1980s. It's basically a little miniaturized phonograph strapped to someone's chest, and then they have a pair of tubes connected to their ears, and they are just sort of walking down the road listening to an early version of an audiobook. So that seems like one of those predictions that basically came true, although it took a lot longer than people expected for it to come true. As you said, it took about 50 years for the technology to catch up with the imagination We'll talk a bit more about the technology, but suffice to say that these tinfoil tubes were able to record about three minutes worth of audio. However, with the development of the cinema and other recording techniques, by the end of the First World War, people are beginning to think quite seriously about how lengthy extracts of the spoken word and books can be recorded and at the forefront of this are two blind men one in the United States and one in the UK who see that this could be exactly what blind people have been crying out for the Americans got there first just could you introduce us to Robert Irwin of the American Foundation from the Blind Sure. And I think that's an important uh, point to emphasize is that uh, rather than this being a technology that was sort of given to blind people uh, for their benefit, I mean, this was a technology that was largely driven by um, blind people and sort of uh, working with uh, industry to make sure people had access to this technology. Uh, so the Americans did get there first, but I, I should say too that the, the UK did a lot of the research first. They just didn't kind of um, get to the finish line first. 
so that's important too, that there's a lot of sort of development on both sides of the Atlantic going on at the same time. Um, and slightly different technologies uh, came out of, of these efforts as a result too. So Robert Irwin was a blind man who headed up the American Foundation for the Blind in the United States. Um, and he was sort of the leading figure there uh, pushing forward this technology. Um, the motivation of both countries was the return of soldiers from the First World War um, who'd lost their sight for, for various reasons um, and could no longer read in the way they used to. And whereas blind people had always sought alternative ways of reading, um, Braille being the most obvious one, um, this wasn't necessarily seen as a, a sort of public issue. Uh, something that you know the country owed a responsibility to uh, help resolve until these soldiers came back because they had lost their sight um, defending the country you know in service of the country so they did feel like there was a real public duty to um, help uh, improve these veterans lives in any way that, that that people could so this was one thing that could be done is find a technological way to help uh, blinded veterans um, read for themselves rather than rely on the help of other people. And it's important to remember too, just there weren't that many options um, at this time if you lost your sight midlife to read. Uh, only about 20% of uh, blind people in the US at that time could read Braille. These were often people who learned quite early in their life, whereas I think the majority of people um, who've lost their sight do so after the age of 50 or something when it, it's just quite difficult to learn a new language um, at that age. Uh, so this was a way of helping people in that situation continue to read if they weren't able to read in Braille, for instance. And Braille was expensive. You give a figure that a copy of David Copperfield that would cost $1 in the United States in 1934 would actually cost $35 in Braille. I mean, that's an incredibly large amount of money for a person who was probably unemployed to to fork out. And there were a number of advocates for literacy and, and bringing books to blind people as a right, not least Helen Keller, who made a very impassioned speech to Congress in, I think, 1930? Yeah, that's right. Um, she was an incredible advocate for uh, causes relating to blind people. Um, even in a case like this, where she personally wouldn't benefit from this technology um, since she was also deaf. But uh, she initially was skeptical of the technology too. And that's an interesting sort of twist in the story that when the technology first came out, she had strong socialist beliefs at the time. Uh, so was opposed to what she called a luxury that was unnecessary at the time um, when so many people were sort of struggling from uh, the Great Depression. Um, but she was eventually saw the utility of the device and came around and became a big advocate, uh, became, I think, one of the technology's greatest, greatest promoters and helped to raise an incredible amount of um, funding to support these projects. One of the anxieties when this um, recorded book uh, machinery first came out was that there would be competition for funding between Braille projects and uh, recorded books projects. So rather than sort of additional funding being given to support this new technology, that funding would just be taken from uh, from Braille projects. Um, you mentioned how expensive Braille could be, and it was also, it, it took up a lot of space too. So th there were some, some serious drawbacks uh, that I think made a lot of Braille readers rightly fear for having their technology um, or their access to books reduced because of the expenses and um, storage costs too. Um, even when I was writing this book, so you know, in the last decade, uh, I uh, visited several libraries who were deaccessioning some of their collections, which largely meant getting rid of Braille books because they were seen as just being so bulky that there was no reason to keep them anymore because they just took up um, lots of warehouse space. There, there was very little thought given to the fact that these might sort of be um, important uh, aspects of our heritage and should be kept for that reason, as I, I think we would think about at least before we just got rid of uh, other forms of print books. So I, I think Braille readers were right to be wary of new initiatives that might sort of pose a threat. Although in this case, I think uh, the, the divide actually wasn't as sharp as people feared because there was a lot of overlap between the two constituencies. So 
a lot of Braille readers actually benefited tremendously from having access to recorded books as well. Um, some people read Braille, but could only do so at a slow rate or could only do so for limited amounts of time. So to be able to read in a multimodal way, meaning you know, read both Braille and listen to books was hugely um, useful for some people. So I, uh, a lot of people whose testimonies I've I, I read from that time period talk about how they might use Braille, for instance, to study or you know, read very serious books, to do work, but then in the evening would still enjoy just listening to a book where they could sort of sit back and, uh, I don't know, smoke a cigarette or have a glass of whiskey while they, while they listen. Yes, I must say by the end of the day, if I've been doing Braille, I'm actually pretty tired and I'm very happy to swap between Braille and talking books because I can relax a bit more and, and you can do more with an audio book. I, I find I can cook. We, we will come on to some of those very moving testimonials a little bit later. But in 1934, the first talking books were produced by the AFB. And they were uh, quite a mixed bag. I, I believe the first recording was The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, but there were some other quite surprising and um, rather patriotic titles on the list as well. Uh, so you're absolutely right. The first recording was a poem, but I think that was more symbolic gesture because there was a deliberate effort to avoid recording fiction, at least initially, because that was sort of a, a controversial point um, for the programme uh, as it started in the U.S., mainly because government funding was going towards the recording of these books. And there were plenty of people who were skeptical that uh, public funding should be spent on fiction or had concerns about the content of that fiction. So this w w would sort of uh, lead to controversies over the next few decades that the uh, people in charge of choosing the initial recordings wanted to avoid. So what they chose instead was a sort of safer group of texts, and these involved the Bible, which uh, I think both in the U.S. and the U.K. has always been sort of one of the most popular uh, recorded books of all time, um, even though it was on a huge number of uh, records at this time, um, along with patriotic documents like uh, the Constitution, for instance. So you can, again, see how any anxieties people might have about public funding going towards mm -hmm. um, entertainment would be allayed by uh, having the money go towards these sort of patriotic documents that would uh, ensure people are getting uh, getting certain kinds of content over others. And then Shakespeare as well, which, you know, again, would probably be something people could guess at just as sort of a, something everyone would agree was just sort of important part of literary heritage. And I think the Gettysburg Address was there as well. Yeah, yeah. It's so it, and you could tell that these choices aren't necessarily being made on what people probably wanted to read as much as almost like a civics lesson at school where what are the texts we could put on that we would want everyone to get from a, a history class? In the UK, it was a very similar story. The leading figure there, unlike Robert Irwin, who I believe was born blind, the leading figure in the UK was a soldier who had been blinded in the Battle of the Somme in 1916. Can you introduce us to Captain Ian Fraser? Sure. So uh, Ian Fraser was sort of the equivalent to Ir Irwin's equivalent in the UK and that he really pushed forward this technology and experimented for, for years, just trying to find a way to make it work um, long before sort of the technology was in place to uh, to, to make that a, a real possibility. Um, as you mentioned, I mean, he was he was shot in the eyes uh, in the war, came back, um, but was incredibly talented, enter energetic man, so devoted his attention to an organization called St. Dunstan's. Now it's known as Blind Veterans UK. Um, and this was a, a group devoted to the rehabilitation of um, soldiers who had been blinded in the war. And one of the important um, missions of this group was kind of to challenge the stereotype of blind people as um, uh, sort of passive or incapable by teaching them trade so they can be independent and uh, rely on their own skills. Uh, so at their location in London, I think it was up near Regent's Park at the time, you would often see uh, these, the, the veterans at this um, organization sort of out doing very vigorous forms of exercise, like rowing, things like that, to sort of, I think just the optics alone challenge the ideas of what blind people were capable of. And this the Talking Book program was a big part of that, was um, sure people could depend on family members or other people to read aloud to them, 
but this finding a uh, inventing a device that could sort of play recorded books would be a way for these soldiers again to be self-reliant and um, be able to read on their own rather than having to rely on other people and I've, I've read a lot of letters um, over the years uh, from blind people at the time describing how annoying it could be to have to rely on someone else to read to you because you know these readers they could be unreliable they might interject their opinions into the readings they might have um, strong feelings about what type of material should be read so there was kind of a infantilizing aspect to the experience of being read aloud to that um, you know former soldiers who were used to being sort of uh, in in very active uh, self-reliant roles just just did not deal well with and there were a significant number of veterans who had been blinded in the First World War, especially in the UK, not least because of the chlorine gas that had been used in the First World War. So there really there were advertising campaigns for St Dunstan's that were very emotive. They they had a slogan "Blinded for You," so they were pointing to the public and asking for not just understanding but also funding and funding for the development of talking books came from charitable donations in the UK very different from in the states that's right so we we spoke a moment ago just about sort of the, the controversies affecting the selection of books for the US talking book program um and that was primarily because there was government funding um, I think the story is almost the reverse of what I would have expected. I, I, I tend to associate uh, the UK, Britain today with uh, being sort of a welfare state with generous provision for, for health and other aspects of life, whereas the US doesn't tend to have that sort of um, generous public funding. But it was the reverse in this instance, at least, uh, that the um, British talking book scheme did have to rely on private funding for the most part. And that also shaped uh, their program in all sorts of ways, including the selection of books. Um, since books were so expensive to record, one issue was, uh, you know, how can you raise money to record more books? So a lot of uh, the books that were recorded came from, pub from, from private donations, uh, people who were willing to donate money, often though with strings attached, such as recording a particular title that might not necessarily be what the uh, the the people in charge of putting together the reading list would choose for themselves, or blind readers would choose, but something that someone just felt strongly um, would be useful for blind readers. So often religious texts uh, would be chosen. And of course, that explains why one of the first three talking books produced in the UK in 1935 was The Gospel According to St John. However, in a marked difference to the US talking books, Britain also had some popular fiction among those first three books, including an Agatha Christie. Yep. So a, a couple of books that are, are still popular today. Um, Agatha Christie's The Murder of Roger Ackroyd and Joseph Conrad's Typhoon. Um, and I find these two choices particularly interesting because uh, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, for anyone who has read that text, um, might remember that there's a phonograph that plays a key role in the solution mm. to that mystery. Uh, so it's already got sort of a meta level of sound recording technology within the first example of a book being recorded on that type of uh, technology too. So I love that dimension to it. And then of course, um, mysteries and detective stories have always been one of the most popular genres uh, in talking books or audiobooks today, um, partly because of sort of that strong plot element uh, and, and that suspense that sort of keeps people listening. Uh, so this is, uh, I think it's an inspired choice to start with. Um, and then Joseph Conrad's Typhoon is, is interesting for different reasons. Uh, but there, there's those two literary texts do represent a marked difference from the U.S. where fiction was kind of um, introduced after the initial wave of text went out to readers, almost on the slide to avoid um, too much attention. And this kind of broad appeal approach helped reduce the stigma and isolation of blind and partially sighted people on both sides of the Atlantic. And as we'll hear after the break, they were pretty much universally welcomed by the consumers of those books. Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca 
or leave a voicemail by calling 844-122-1111. Welcome back to My Life in Books. This week I'm in conversation with Matthew Rubri about the untold story of the talking book. And this is the first of two episodes covering the subject. By 1935 there were organisations in both the United States and the UK producing talking books. And in what I found the most moving part of your book you reproduce the testimonies of some of the people who were in receipt of those talking books, whose blindness had prevented them from enjoying literature. Could you tell us where you came across these archives? Sure. I did most of this research in archives held by, uh, I guess, these organizations, sort of, sort of advocacy organizations for people who are blind. Um, so in the U.S., it was looking through the archives held by the American Foundation for the Blind and also the Library of Congress, who partnered with the uh, with that foundation to bring out the first recording. And then here in the U.K., it was mainly through the Royal National Institute of Blind People, um, who worked with St. Dunstan's, or, or the group now known as Blind Veterans U.K., who also both had archives. And I just sort of, in, in some instances, these this correspondence was kind of well-organized and easy to find, whereas in other cases... Uh, I just spent um, weeks of my life searching through boxes, hoping to stumble across something that would be relevant. I, I think now that the importance of uh, talking books uh, has been recognized in, in both countries, a, a, a lot of effort has been put into preserving this material. But that was not the case when I started this project. It was just basically um, boxes full of stuff just left left abandoned on a shelf um, and lots of broken records as well because these are fragile um, these early records were very fragile, and it was sort of heartbreaking to come across that. Now, again, I think a lot of this material is being stored at the, the British Library. You can hear a lot of these original recordings uh, for yourself if you ever want to. And there are magazines that were also produced by the AFB or the National Institute for the Blind, such as, I think, Matilda Ziegler magazine, where... Blind people had taken the trouble to write in and praise the the autonomy, the freedom that their talking book machines had given them. And they're very, very moving. And in the days before computers, it's pretty difficult as a blind person to write a letter. Normally you have to get somebody else to do it for you. These people felt incredibly strongly the, the boon that talking books had brought to their lives. Yeah, I was surprised at how much correspondence was out there, either preserved um, through letters and archives or through these publications that you mentioned. Um, any historian who works with old books kind of hopes that they will come across, let's say, so the notes in the, the margin of a printed page. But it's a, that's obviously just not the case with audiobooks. You don't have any of those kind of notes in the margin. So I had low expectations, but um, these early publications uh, are just treasure troves of direct views of the first blind people to use this recorded books technology. Uh, a lot of the debates that I associated with the present period, I mean, sort of the 90s and stuff, debates over whether reading a recorded book counted uh, as as reading at all. I sort of thought those were debates from the 80s and 90s, but hmm. they started much earlier. They were being had by blind people um, all, all the way back to the, the, the 40s and the early days of this technology. So you get a, a huge range of views in these sort of forums preserved where people would write in and talk about what they thought of the technology. As you said, I mean, some of these accounts are very moving because a lot of them are about reading independent. So people who yeah. said they never thought they'd read for themselves again, and here they, they could do so now. So th there's just a lot of sort of overwhelming gratitude towards this device for sort of having an immediate impact on people's lives. There were a lot of sort of comments about how these talking books offered uh, a form of entertainment at a time when you know, entertainment just w was, was a lot scarcer than it is today. So a, a lot of people just complained about being bored for large chunks of time. And this was something they could do. And suddenly, instead of just kind of, um, I don't know, twiddling their thumbs all day, they would stay up half the night listening to these <laughs> books. Uh, so just a, a big difference right there. And again, I mean, I should just stress just very different attitudes toward disability at the time where there was a public perception that 
if you had a disability and a particular blindness, you just weren't capable of doing lots of things. We know that's just completely uh, false today. Uh, but that was the attitude uh, in, in a lot of cases. And I think people were just kind of left without a, a sort of calling. Uh, a lot of these people didn't have jobs or were very poor. So there just weren't many options at the time. A lot of people comment on how it improved their mental health. So especially veterans who had come back from the war would talk about how these books kind of um, kept their minds from dwelling on distressing thoughts. It helped with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder um, that we're familiar with today. So it helped people deal with things like depression too, just having another way of engaging with the world. And on that note, it was just often cited as a form of social inclusion that people felt a part of society much more with access to this technology. And I think just being able to hear another voice made a big difference in people's lives. Um, there's a lot of sort of personification of this technology where people talk about the talking book player, even though it's just a machine in the corner. I mean, they talk about it as if it was a, a real person in the room speaking directly to them. Uh, so a lot of people talk about these early devices as friends of a sort, kind of the way we're, we're used to with contemporary media, where people feel like they have personal relationships with the, the voices they hear on the radio, say. Yeah, I was actually reminded of uh, the way that people now talk about their Alexas or, or other talking speakers. And there's that real sense of friendship without obligation. Uh, as you said earlier, a lot of people who had relied on a reader coming into them once a week, quite apart from the expense that that incurred, felt a sense of obligation to that person who might be doing a rather imperfect job, but because they didn't really have an option, they felt that they had to be grateful for an imperfect service. Yeah, we, we, we use the, the phrase emotional labor today. Just That's a lot of work, um, interacting with people who are often strangers and having to kind of pay a steep cost to uh, you know, have access to books. Um, so again, that just sense of these machines offering reading independence. It's just a theme that keeps coming up again and again when I uh, went through this old correspondence. And so a big crucial aspect of this technology was that it could be used by blind people themselves. So they'd be able to operate the machinery for themselves. Um, they could get the, the records sent by post directly to their houses so they didn't have to leave their house since many people weren't able to. And then the records themselves would have uh, a label on one side, just an ordinary print, so it could be read visually, mm. but on the other, it would have Braille. So again, people could sort of operate the machine with themselves, flipping records uh, as needed. And that was a crucial point, uh, again, because it wasn't designed to be a machine where someone would bring it over and kind of operate it for you, but you would do it yourself. One of the most common reactions that came through your correspondence, I think, is summed up in a letter from one early recipient of Talking Books in the late 1930s, who says, oh, what a world of beauty is now open to us. And, and another who says, we are no longer excluded from the world of books. And as you say, when the only alternatives were somebody reading to you or learning braille that just shows what a what a great social step forward this was in the lives of blind people yes it's it's often described as a second revolution in blind literacy uh, braille being sort of the first big um, technological breakthrough that offered uh, blind people access to books um, this was the second then and so again reached you know a huge percentage of the readers who weren't able to read Braille. So suddenly you had these two choices here. And just as it, from a historian's perspective, it's just really interesting looking back at this time and seeing the way our conception of the book is changing mm -hmm. I mean, quite radically um, from just thinking about the book as, let's say, a printed artifact to suddenly thinking about it as something that come in multiple forms, including Braille and, and talking books. So suddenly when you're reading this correspondence um, from blind people, they often specify uh, what type of book they're reading, rather than just assuming that everyone will read the same type of book. They will say whether they're reading with their fingers or with their ears or, or how they're using the technology. Yes, choice. That great thing that seems to be taken away from you when you do lose your sight. I think one of the other things that comes through is that it also meant that people who perhaps have been newly blinded could hear the 
stories and testimonies of other blind people. Helen Keller's autobiography was an early talking book and that sense of no longer being isolated if you've become blind, that you can hear that you're not the only person going through these very mixed feelings really comes through. That, that's absolutely true. Um, although I was interested to find while I was doing my research that uh, the vast majority of patrons of the talking book programs uh, deliberately avoided books on the topic of blindness. Mm -hmm. uh, they wanted escapism. I mean, they wanted uh, the same books that everyone else was reading. And for whatever reason, I mean, maybe uh, this changed over time, but for whatever reason, at least initially, um, people kind of didn't want to be reminded um, too much about their own lives. I mean, they, they wanted to use these books to access those realms of beauty that, that we spoke about a moment ago, for instance, or to just uh, live vicariously through other people or just to uh, escape from reality for a brief time before resuming our ordinary lives. So uh, the same motivations for reading books as, as most people today. Now, as you say, there was some concern from some blind people that the allocation of resources would be taken away from Braille, and you reproduce a letter from a Mr Copeland in the New Beacon magazine in the UK from 1937, where he gets rather hot under the collar. But the allocation of resources was also a very hot topic for those who were choosing which books should be made into talking books. And there were some charges of censorship, that maybe this was a bunch of sighted people on either side of the Atlantic choosing the books that they thought were good for blind people rather than the books that blind people actually wanted to read. Yes, it was really interesting to me going back and looking at the concerns voiced by Braille readers about competition from this new technology, because they raised really fascinating points about the nature of reading. And so a lot of Braille readers felt strongly that there was a difference between listening to a book and reading with your fingers. They saw reading with your fingers as equivalent to reading with your eyes, because in both forms of reading, you're converting a set of printed or graphic symbols back into the spoken word, whereas listening to a book, you're just not taking that step. So a lot of Braille readers felt like there was a different relationship to the text, that you were still imagining what the voice sounded like uh, by converting those printed letters into sound in your head. And again, you don't do that when you're listening to a book because you have someone else's voice in your head. So that's a really interesting debate about the nature of reading and, and something that I think is still relevant with neuroscientific studies today, which look at what parts of the brain are activated by reading. And interestingly enough, I mean, Braille tends to use the same part of the brain, the visual cortex, as a sighted reading. So people who aren't using the visual cortex, uh, that part of the brain will be repurposed for something like reading Braille. So there is sort of a, a really interesting debate that uh, these early Braille readers are bringing up. Uh, but you're absolutely right that these much bigger debates explode about censorship and paternalism, this idea that books were being chosen for blind people based on what other people thought was good for them rather than that what they wanted to read. So even though technically people had access to books, it would still be a long time and a, a long hard-fought battle to make sure people had access to the titles they wanted. And this brings up sort of debates over the subsequent decades about, is it appropriate to choose books that say have profanity in them, have sexual content, violence, or blasphemy? Um, and there was a, a, a fear voiced by a lot of people, including blind people themselves, that hearing offensive material was even more offensive or, or more forceful than um, reading that same material in print. If you're reading a text in print, you can kind of, I don't know, skim over a, a curse word or something like that. Whereas hearing it aloud, it just has much more force. There's a more visceral feel to it. So I have some some sympathy um, to the complainants, even though I would be in favor of having as much access as possible. Yeah, it has to be said, I've, I've never been in favor of bowdlerizing books, but hearing some words read out in an audio book make me wince in a way that if I read them in Braille, as you say, your mind kind of dulls them down, almost blanks them out. Yeah. So most people said, you know, they wanted to have that choice. So there there were various ways of handling that. But 
you know, the committees were just kind of making this up as they went, I think learning the hard way by making mistakes. So they tried things like putting you know, sort of labels on material to you know, sort of what we would call, let's say, trigger warnings today, saying that there's the following types of potentially offensive material in this book. So you could warn readers, that was one way of doing it. But I think we're also just dealing with a really difficult problem in the sense that the blind readers who made up the audience for talking books was just a very diverse group. And, you know, you had everything from just people who were very old and almost came from a different generation down to young people who just had much higher levels of tolerance towards this material. So how do you please all these groups at once? Um, and one of the issues then was because of the sort of scant resources, you could only record a certain number of books. So it'd be a much lower percentage than, let's say, a public library would be able to make um, because recording books are still quite expensive. So do you choose sort of books that everyone could potentially read, um, let's say classics, for instance, um, but that maybe no one will be foaming at the mouth to read? Or do you read sort of contemporary stuff and record something that is only going to appeal to a small minority of that readership? But by, by making that choice, you know, you're not able to record something more popular. So I think whatever was chosen was going to lead to debates of this sort, um, whether it came from one group of readers or another. And of course, if you wanted more contemporary fiction, you also had to deal with the worries of the publishers and the authors. And Margaret Mitchell, the author of Gone with the Wind actually refused to have Gone with the Wind recorded for several years because of worries and and a perceived offence caused by the American Foundation for the Blind. That's right. I mean, authors had real anxieties about, I guess, losing copyright control of their books because the only way these talking book libraries could work is if publishers agreed to sort of waive copyright on these books so they could be recorded for free and given to uh, people with disabilities for free. Um, otherwise, the, the programs were already sort of impoverished anyway. So it would never have worked if they had to pay royalties the way the commercial audiobook industry would go on to do. But it just wasn't possible um, with this audience. So in Margaret Mitchell's case, Gone with the Wind was the novel, it seemed like every blind person at that time wanted to hear. I think there was a real tension between sort of the classics that were recorded for blind people because they were thought to be good for the audience, um, enriching and morally instructive. But that wasn't what people wanted to read in general. Most people wanted just access to contemporary fiction, the bestsellers that were being read by everyone else at the time. And Gone with the Wind is probably, I mean, the best example. Uh, I read so many letters just from people saying, please, you know, record Gone with the Wind. And there were efforts to do that. But as you said, Margaret Mitchell got spooked because she worried that once she gave up control of the audio recordings of these books, it might get played on the radio somewhere and that suddenly she would lose all those potential sales. You know, I, I don't think people understood very well what the future of the audiobook market would be like, that it could sort of supplement the print market rather than everyone just you know, listening to something for free and then never, never reading the book in print. But that was kind of her fear at the time. And there was a bit of a misunderstanding because she thought that the American Foundation for the Blind and the Library of Congress had actually already recorded her book without her permission. And so she was just sort of furious for that. So it just took an intense diplomatic effort to, to woo her back and to get permission to record that book. So blind people eventually did get access to Gone with the Wind, but not until four years after everyone else had been reading it. So as we can see, plenty of discussion and controversy swirling around the history of the talking book right from the very beginning on both sides of the Atlantic. And we haven't even got to that really thorny issue that has always dogged audiobooks or talking books, whether listening to a book is actually the same as reading it. However, we do need something to discuss in episode two of this My Life in Books special. But let's finish off side one by recording the books of your life, Matthew Rubri, after the break. Catch up with this and every episode of My Life in Books by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books. More from Red Sale and his guest in a moment. Back to part one of this My Life in Books special episode, where I'm in conversation with Professor Matthew Rubery about 
the untold story of the talking book. And we're going to round off this first part by exploring some of the books that you have enjoyed during your life. So, Matt, was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? Yes, I wasn't too young when I encountered this book, but it is James Joyce's Ulysses. Um, and there is a reason I'm mentioning it here, and that's because this was a book I read at university. And that was the book that made me realize that this is something I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I went on and studied more and eventually became a professor in an English department. So it all started with this book, though. Until then, I just thought of reading as more of entertainment, something I did quite casually. So uh, for anyone who hasn't read this book yet, um, it just describes a single day in the life of a character named Leopold Bloom as he walks around the streets of um, Dublin back in 1904. It's largely stream of consciousness. So you basically just get his sort of idle thoughts throughout the day as he thinks about um, what he's going to have for lunch, for instance. So it doesn't sound like that dramatic a book so far, but what sets it apart is its style, the way it's written. Um, each chapter is written in a different style, and it's constantly alluding to literary history and other texts. So uh, Homer's The Odyssey would be an obvious one, because that's where the title of Joyce's Ulysses comes from. Um, and Joyce once said he put in so many puzzles that it'll keep professors busy for centuries arguing over what he meant. And that's obviously true in my case. I mean, this is still what I do. Uh, I wanted to mention it here, though, too, because I think this is a milestone in talking book programs, because we talked about debates earlier uh, over what books to include. And Joyce's Ulysses for about 50 years was not recorded because it was thought to be unrecordable and beyond kind of the, the reach of most blind readers. Um, so I think it's an important step forward because it acknowledges that the same books available to other people should be available to blind people, and they should be able to make that decision whether they want to, let's say, just read mysteries and thrillers, or whether they want to do what I did and um, end up devoting their life to the study of texts like this one. So it was recorded eventually in 1967. And I think it sounds terrific, too. I mean, this was a book that was thought to be unrecordable because it is so literary and stylistically dazzling. But I think it's actually easier to listen to uh, than to read. And having read both the printed book and listened to it, um, it really brought it to life for me in a different way listening to it, and particularly brought out the sense of humor and the puns that come out much more audibly through, through, through the reading than they did when I read the printed book. And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? Well, so I'm aware that Ulysses has a reputation as a highbrow book, so I, I wanted to make sure to give our listeners a page turner as well. So I chose for the rainy day book, Ellen Wood's East Lynn. Um, it was published in 1861, and it was what's known as a Victorian sensation novel. So it's basically uh, a thriller full of women doing outrageous things like committing bigamy or stealing other people's identities or um, poisoning their husbands when their husbands do something they don't like. Um, so kind of defies our expectations of Victorian novels having kind of passive heroines who never sort of speak their minds. I mean, sensation novels are the exact opposite. In this particular one, uh, it features a woman who does the unthinkable by abandoning her children to run off with another man. There's a misunderstanding. So she runs off with another man to France to start a new life, but quickly realizes that that was a huge mistake. And so tries to disguise herself in order to sneak back into her former home to raise her kids in disguise as, as a governess. So I won't tell you how that works out, but there is a famous line associated with this book. I don't really hear much today, but I think like my grandmother's generation, everyone seemed to know it. It's a line that goes, dead, dead, and never called me mother. So if you want to know the meaning behind that line, then I suggest you read this book and block out your schedule for the next few days once you start it, because it's a page turner and you will not be able to put it down. And finally, is there a book you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? Yeah, um, the one I chose for this, it's, again, a very different genre. This is a, a science book. It's Ed Young's An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. I mean, I do have a science background. So uh, in addition to my literary interests, I do listen to a lot of science books. This one considers all the different ways that animals apprehend the world using different forms of perception. So things like echolocation, sensing vibrations in the world, perceiving ultrasound, or sensing uh, people's body heat, or even doing things like sensing magnetic fields. So I found it fascinating from a scientific 
perspective, but I thought it was particularly relevant to today's session as well, because it made me think about all the different ways there are of doing things. So a big theme of my work is uh, that there is more than one way to read a book. And you know, I think this book brings out just the full range of the way we can use our senses and you know, that we probably never even think about. So obviously with reading, I'm making the argument that we can read with our eyes, we can read with our fingers, we can read with our ears as well. Even a case I've been working on lately, because my, my latest research is all neurodiversity um, and not just physical disability, uh, I've come across the case of a man who reads using his tongue. So I think this is great that we can do an activity like reading in so many different ways. And this book just helped me think about how many ways there are of leading lives outside the human shapes as well. Matthew Rubri, thank you for three fantastic choices of books of your life there and for taking us deeper into the untold story of the talking book. And I hope you'll come back for part two of this My Life in Book special where we can dig deeper into the technology behind the development of the audiobook and to its future developments that lie ahead of us. I'm looking forward to it. That's it for part one of this special edition of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, Matthew Rubery, and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. Sean and I have already put the finishing touches to episode two, so don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to hear Matt Rubery conclude his untold story of The Talking Book. In the meantime, if you'd like to drop us a line or leaf through our back catalogue, Here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this programme by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. Hello, I'm Sean Priest. Join me monthly for Sean of the Shed, where I introduce you to all the technology that can be so useful to us as blind or partially sighted people. Find Sean of the Shed wherever you find all your podcasts.